let's talk science. From the University of Groningen, this is MindWise podcast, hosted and brought to you by psychology students. Hello everybody, my name is Marcella and today we'll be talking to Martin Dirksen um, about the replicability crisis in the context of um, the course uh, Controversies in Psychology. Um, it's a third year elective course and first of all I'm going to ask Martin to introduce himself a bit to our listeners. So uh, my name is Martin Dirksen, I've been um a an assistant professor here for a long time since uh, 2011. Um, I did my PhD here uh, too in the in the 1990s. Um, this particular course, controversies in psychology, is a course with a long history. Um, if memory serves me well, then um, I set up this course together with Dawa Dreisma, I believe, when he first came with us, and that was in um, 1994. Mm -hmm. So I think it's that old. Um, and over the years, we've had a number of uh, lecturers uh, involved. And so I've been always been involved, apart from a couple of years when I was elsewhere. And what we do is just talk about whatever controversies we uh, think are interesting and what we want to teach with the course is what controversies uh, in psychology can tell you about the way psychology works, the way science works, uh, because controversies are, uh, they, they give you uh, a look behind the scenes, so to speak. A lot of what is taken for granted uh, in the normal course of events suddenly becomes a matter of discussion when there is a controversy. And so the idea is by studying a controversy, you see some something of the, uh, the normally hidden mechanisms in science. And we've uh, talked about race in psychology, I've talked about uh, intelligence, a very old controversy of course, Others have spoken about folk psychology was an issue for a while. Gerard Breusma used to have a lecture about um, the sort of tension between experts, uh, like scientific experts about children and parents, uh, who have their own expertise uh, with children, of course, but these often don't quite uh, match or get along. So lots of things. And today we're going to um, talk about um, the first, we're going to try and cover some aspect of the first um, lecture uh, of the course yep. um, that has to do with the replicability crisis mm -hmm. and to offer a very, very short background to, to this controversy. Um, the replicability crisis is a methodological crisis in science where um, scientists haven't been able to reproduce studies 
um, either by 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 themselves or by uh, other uh, scientists. And it has been widely and actively discussed in psychology, but it also persists in other domains such as chemistry, biology, engineering, medicine. My first question would be, why do you think that replication as a general concept is important for science? Um, why is it important? Because according to a common view of, of science, science looks for regularities and in particular universal regularities. So things that are always the same. So scientific laws. That's perhaps not the only view of science, but it's a very common view of science. And well, simply put, if, you, if you're looking for regularities, you expect to be able to produce such a regularity. So if you found something, then you assume or, or you, you, you want to uh, find it again. You want basically to prove that this is not a spurious effect and this did not just yeah. happen by chance, but it happens yeah. more often, right? Yeah, and uh, and this is very important, uh, and this is the element that was uh, emphasized by the philosopher of science, Karl Popper, that you can reproduce it following specific instructions, so that you have a list of things you have to do in order to produce this effect. And so you could see the methods section of a scientific article, a scientific report, as such a set of instructions. I have a question in relation to that because I wasn't sure um, I was going to ask it, but now that you mentioned it, in one of the articles that we, um, that is a part of the um, course material, mm -hmm. um, they talked about three necessary things uh, for yeah. replication, one of which being common sense. Yes. What is your opinion on that? Because to me, that construct is very abstract. Yes, and also common sense is often presented as something like the opposite of science. Uh, let's take a, an analogous experience. Let's take a, a recipe for a, for a cake. So you have a recipe, which is uh, a set of ingredients and a number of steps you have to follow in order to bake the cake. And you would expect that if you follow these steps, then you get the same cake every time again, right? So this is analogous to uh, the situation in science with an experiment. But um, anybody who's ever tried to bake a cake also knows that these instructions that you find in, in cookbooks are usually not quite enough to be successful because you also need a certain expertise with baking and you need, well, basic common sense. So for instance, I, um, my son is, uh, is 17 and um, every now and then I, I try to teach him some cooking and with him you see that he doesn't quite grasp some of the, the he doesn't quite have the, the necessary skills yet that uh, an experienced cook will have, and he also lacks some of the, the, the kitchen common sense that people who've been in the kitchen uh, for a longer time just have. So that's an example of, um, you know, how do you 
it, it's things like how do you operate a, a hob or um, what is um, a modest flame, right? So if, mm. if the, uh, a moderate temperature, what, what is that? And if you're an accomplished cook, then you, you will know sort of what a moderate temperature is. But if, you complete, if you're a novice, then you have no idea. Right. Um, I was asking because to me it seems like this, this concept could be stretched to... It basically includes a loophole, right? Yeah. You can argue that to me this was not common sense yeah. um, that should have been explicitly stated in the methodological setup. Or a researcher whose experiment has not been replicated by somebody else, the replication failed, so to speak, uh, produced a different result, then that original researcher can say, well, you just lack the expertise or, or the common sense. Right. And, and that is a, is a problem. Um, and it's a problem that uh, Popper already saw. And then, yeah, then the question is, how do you deal with that? So Kahneman proposed a new etiquette for replication. Mm -hmm. And in response to that, Andrew Wilson stated that any study is fair game to criticism and replication. And it is the um, original author's responsibility to provide um, yep. researchers with all the necessary materials. Which of these views do you think should be enforced in, in uh, science? Well, there's a, there is an issue with the idea of enforcing views, um, but that's maybe for, for later. I can see both sides of the issue. And actually, Andrew Wilson uh, also says, yes, it can be very useful to, for instance, uh, get in contact with the original researchers and ask them for, for advice and and show them your your idea, your de design, and ask them whether this is the correct way to proceed. But he says the responsibility is still on the original researchers to be as explicit and as uh, comprehensive as possible in their description of the experiment. And particularly nowadays, now that word count is not no longer such an issue because you can always put supplemental materials online. You have the freedom, the, uh, the, the possibility of putting a, a lengthy uh, description of your experiment online so that uh, people don't even need to get into contact with you for additional advice. Although that may still be a good thing to do. But the main thing I would say is that you always try to, or you should be trying to work towards a comprehensive instruction. And yes, there's also always going to be a, a residue of, well, technical skills uh, and, and common sense um, that maybe you can't quite uh, formulate explicitly, but you want to keep that as, as minimal as possible. It seemed though to me that these two people advocated 
different approaches to to replication because uh, for Kahneman it was important that there was continuous communication between the replicator and the original author mm -hmm. in trying to make the direct replication as close as possible to the original study yeah. um, and Wilson, while not explicitly, I think the message that, that his blog post gave to the audience was that sometimes original authors are not as forthcoming with, with their um, methodology as they should be, which is why it yeah. is everyone's responsibility to kind of make sure that every scientist has the necessary materials. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that over the last six years, Replication has become, it's become adversarial. And to some extent, I think that's, that's uh, natural, but it is not necessary. So um, ideally, uh, I would say uh, researchers collaborate uh, with each other in, in replicating each other's experiments, uh, try to build on each other's experiments, try to extend them, check each other's work, etc. Whereas nowadays, it's often seen in a sort of, uh, yeah, an adversarial or even a forensic perspective. So that a replication becomes a, a, a test. The point is that, and, and this is being argued by many people, now that so many replications keep failing or, or producing different results, you get the idea that um, maybe a bit of testing, maybe a bit of checking um, is at this moment the right thing to do. So that replication has become adversarial, is perhaps uh, natural given the state of the, the field, but ideally you want it to be more of a, a collaborative uh, enterprise. I think the, uh, the issue that you have to keep in mind with replications is that two experiments are never exactly the same. That's one thing you have to keep in mind. And the other thing, and this is actually not mentioned often in the discussion at the moment, is that two experiments are always the same in some way, right? Can you elaborate more on the second one? Um, there's always some aspect in which two experiments are the same, uh, if only because they're two experiments. But say that you, say we have a theory and we deduce two different hypotheses from that same theory, then the experiments we do to test these two hypotheses are the same in the sense that ultimately they test the same theory, right? And, and the procedure, the experiment may look completely different, but there is some level, in this case, the theory, that connects the two, that makes them the same. So when you talk about uh, replications, you, are, you always have to keep in mind these two sides, that on the one hand, two experiments are not never exactly the same, and on the other hand, they're never entirely different. Do you think uh, the solution then would be to focus on theories and less on the individual experiments? Well, that is um, the point of view of people who emphasize conceptual replications over direct replications. And my answer would be rather than choose one 
over the other, you have to look at replications in terms of the variations, right? So if you do a direct replication of an original study, some things will be different. You'll have a different sample. Uh, it's a different time of the year. It's a different time to start with. Uh, maybe a different researcher, etc. So these are differences. Um, and then you get a result and you have to re interpret that result in terms of how the experiment was done and how it differs from the original uh, study and how it is the same. These variations, um, I might be wrong here, but I don't think they're necessarily bad, right? Because they no. can be used to establish boundary conditions of the theory. Exactly. So by varying something, you always get new information. That for me would be uh, the most uh, fruitful way of looking at, at replications. And I find it a, a pity in the, in the current debate about replication that it is uh, discussed so much in terms of a sort of a dichotomy between direct and conceptual. A topic that I didn't really know about, to be honest, uh, before this course uh, was the one about bullying in the academia, which um, I want to address with you right now. So in one of the articles, uh, Simone Schnall um, confessed in a blog post that she's received um, considerable amounts of bullying, of cyberbullying and, and otherwise, after one of her uh, findings uh, failed to replicate. I certainly, yes, I know, well, I, I know what uh, Simone Schnall wrote, um, and there's quite a discussion, there still is, in psychology about what is called bullying or, or the, the tone uh, of the debate. That is still a, a, a live issue. Personally, I have no experiences with it. Right. Because on one hand, I think the cyberbullying could be considered, I don't know, human nature or a side effect of this field being so competitive, right? But on the other right. hand, when it interferes with a researcher's ability to do science, as we've noticed, mm. do you think uh, bullying has could in any way damage the way science has done? Yeah, I think the, the debate, the discussion in a field obviously has consequences for how well people can do their work in such a field. I mean, if, if people are constantly harassed, then... Uh, their work will suffer. And this is something that we always have to uh, keep an eye on. Mm -hmm. We have to be very uh, aware of, of, of the possibility, at least, of, of, of problems like that. I'm going to go on to my last question then. And that is, in your view, where do you think we stand now in relation to resolving the doubt in science? that the uh, replicability crisis has created? I think that what I tend to call the, the reform movement has created, it's created an infrastructure, it's created its set of practices, ways of doing, uh, which are starting to sort of congeal into a, a recognizably new way of doing psychology. But it's also the case that there are still people who have barely heard of the fact that there, there is a crisis or who dispute that there is a problem or 
don't really know that there are, there are people working on resolutions. So a, a start has been made, but I think there's still a long way to go. I'd like to thank you very much for the discussion. In the end, if, if you agree, I'd like to pose some rapid fire questions just so that uh, students can get to know the, their teachers. Uh, my first one would be, what's your favorite jam? Uh, blueberry or marmalade. It depends on my mood, I think. Good choice. Uh, what's your favorite street in Fronian? Uh, well, I think this street, actually. Fair. Okay. Um, do you have a favorite album? It's an album called Scientist Meets the Space Invaders. Uh, the, the producer is, is Scientist. The band is a band called uh, The Roots Relics. All right, thank you. And anything you wish you would have known when you were a student? No, I don't think there's anything I would have wished that I had known. No. You think that everything just comes with with practice and lots of dedication to the, to the job? Well, certainly, yeah. I don't think knowing things beforehand is necessarily a good thing. You just have to find out yourself. You have to learn them yourself. And I promise this is the last one because we've had digital exams, but we've never had an open book exam. What exactly can we expect? Because usually you can find the answers in the literature, right? So there will be uh, knowledge elements. And yes, you can uh, look these up. But as I will warn you uh, a few times before the exam, if you need to look up all these knowledge elements, then you're not going to be ready in time. So there'll be knowledge elements, um, there'll be reasoning elements. We want you to connect various things. Basically, what we want to test is, is your insight into um, these particular controversies and what they tell you about how science works. Again, thank you very much for agreeing You're to welcome. do this. And I wish you the very best luck um, with your research and teaching. Um, thank you very much. This podcast was a production of Mindwise for the Department of Psychology at the University of Groningen.